Now, hi, everyone. It's Vox Tablet, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory, and today... Tradition! 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 Do I even need to identify that song? It is, of course, one of the hits from Fiddler on the Roof, the musical that opened on Broadway in 1964 and became a smash in the United States and around the world. Fiddler was based on stories by the Yiddish writer Shalom Aleichem that portrayed shtetl life through the eyes of Tevye the Dairyman. Director and choreographer Jerome Robbins took those stories and, working with lyricist Sheldon Harnick and composer Jerry Buck, turned the musical into a touchstone of Jewish identity and of American identity. I'm sure a lot of us think we are fiddler experts, but we are all of us amateurs compared to Elisa Solomon. Solomon is a theater critic and journalism professor who was on our podcast several years ago talking about another Broadway jewel, West Side Story. At that time, she told us her next project was to be a book on Fiddler on the Roof. Since then, I've asked her several times, where is that book? I want to read that book. And I am so happy to tell you that that book is now here. The book is called Wonder of Wonders, and we are so delighted to have Elisa with us to talk about it. Welcome back, Elisa Solomon. Thanks, Sarah. Fiddler on the Roof was a hit, it seems like, from the moment the curtain went up in New York City. Jackie Kennedy went to see it in the book you tell of Harvey Firestein, who was then a young boy from Brooklyn who saw it and how it electrified him. What do you remember about your first encounter with Fiddler on the Roof? My first encounter was in 1966 or 7, it must have been. I was a young adolescent growing up in a suburb of Chicago, and the touring company came to downtown Chicago, and we all went to see it. So I remember two major things about it. One is my complete and total identification with Huddle. Uh (laughs) You know, I wanted to run off and join the revolution. I mean, maybe that's more an identification with Perchik, uh-huh. but, you know. Her 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 lover. Her, yeah. Um, but really through Huddle. Um, it was very compelling to me. And the other, which is not unrelated to the story of Fiddler, was just that it was a major family outing. My family didn't go downtown to Chicago to see shows. It was the only time we went to see a touring production of a Broadway show. And that was a really big deal. You know, my mom, my dad, my three siblings and I all – you know, packing into the Toyota and going downtown to see a musical. And that speaks to, you know, a couple of things, you know, leaving out my personal fam- family, Michigas. Um, but just how important the show was to Jews in that period all over the country that we would have to go see it. It was it was like an obligation. It was a special event. And that it was about family, of course, uh, was enacted by our all piling into the car to go see it. Well, we should say, right, it's about family. Beyond it being just about Tevye, it's about his daughters, each of whom sort of leaves the nest and marries a different uh, type of person. So Huddle is one of the daughters for those who – for those few of you out there who may not be familiar, who, who maybe with were born Huddle. on a different planet, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, when Fiddler debuted in the mid '60s, Jews here in America were beginning to find their uh, place here and beginning to assimilate after the Holocaust. Twenty years or so after the Holocaust, given that fact, this place seems, in retrospect, surprisingly parochial. And I wonder, was there resistance at all to its staging when it first went up? There must have been some fear that it would beget anti-Semitism or maybe seem too marginal to attract big audiences and make a profit. 
there definitely was that fear among producers when the book writer Joe Stein and the composer and lyricist Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick first started working on it in 62, 63, and they started bringing it around to producers. One after another said to them, no one's going to be interested in this. It's too Jewish. And I think they had some misguided sense that an audience wouldn't be there for these Sholem Aleichem stories translated into an idiom invented by American Jews, the Broadway musical. But things had changed. Jews were much more comfortable by the early mid-60s. You know, it was a very complicated period those years after the war. You know, on the one hand, a kind of exuberance of the U.S. generally and of the prosperity that was available to people and the erosion, really, of social anti-Semitism that had closed certain professions and universities and so on to Jews. I mean, that that was gone. So there was a lot of new uh, enthusiasm and promise in the Jewish community generally at the same time as they were coping with the devastation of the Holocaust. So two very contradictory impulses. And Fiddler spoke to both of those. And I think that's part of why it was such a tremendous success with Jews. But of course, there were on uh, Broadway already, there were some plays that uh, dealt with Jewishness. Sure. Um, well, we talked We, we talked uh, here a few years ago about Milk and Honey. That oh, was yes, the Zionist musical, 1961, Jerry Herman. Um, Diary of Anne Frank was in the 50s. Uh, I don't remember exactly, 55, I think. Uh, there were intermarriage comedies going back to, well, The Jazz Singer um, and and um, uh, Life is with Father. I mean, millions of them. But there hadn't been Broadway shows that dealt with the Eastern European Jewish past. That's the enormous change revolution <laughs> that Fiddler brought onto the American stage. For some members of Fiddler's creative team, this show was deeply personal. And I wonder if you can walk us through briefly what making Fiddler meant specifically for Jerome Robbins, who was the show's director. Yeah. Um, Jerry Robbins was the director and choreographer. He came onto the project sometime after uh, Bach, Harnick, and Stein had already been working on it. And, you know, he was, first of all, a genius and second of all, a really difficult person, and third of all, really tortured about his Jewish identity. And, and that, I think, was mixed up with his anxiety about his homosexuality as a young man. He grew up in an immigrant family in New Jersey in at least what he describes as a very difficult situation. He felt very alienated from his parents and especially from his immigrant father, who he thought was some kind of, you know, sissy, uh, wuss, you know, all, all of those sort of misogynistic words, which are often ascribed historically and in, especially in anti-Semitic uh, literature and, and practice to Jewish men. And he, he wrote in notes toward an autobiography that he never published, but are scrawled and rewritten and typed up and edited like version after version in his papers. He said over and over again in those notes that he didn't want to be like his father. And he tells the story of his uh, being tutored for his bar mitzvah by 
a teacher who's sitting with him in their house in New Jersey and, you know, they're going over something and some boys from the neighborhood are outside the window taunting him and calling him names. And the teacher doesn't do anything. He just ignores them. He doesn't stand up for them or anything. And and this just seems to be a searing moment in the life of young Jerome Robbins, who went, then was young Jerome Rabinowitz. Another defining moment, somewhat contradictory to that one, is that age six, he takes a trip with his mother and aunt and cousins to his the shtetl his father came from, Rojanka, which was in Poland. What what was then Poland mm-hmm. when he was six, and he meets his grandfather in this you know town with dirt roads and so on, and and he writes about this in his notes and diaries in very idyllic terms, you know there are chickens running around and they're playing outside and it's beautiful and verdant and all of those things, and he talks about sitting on his grandfather's lap and his grandfather singing to him in Yiddish and how at home he felt. So he also had that feeling kind of at war with this shame and anxiety about his Jewishness. And as he gets older, he really tries to run away from his Jewishness, like a lot of people of that generation were doing. He changes his name uh, for professional reasons, he says, to Robbins. Um, And actually, after he got a little bit famous, he thought maybe he could change it back. But by then, his parents actually went and changed their names with him. And he thought it, he thought it was probably too late. He also, you know, he named names during the McCarthy uh, period and, and properly tortured himself over it the rest of his life. And again, in his, his diary notes, he explains this by saying that it was a way for him to move away from his Jewishness. That is, you know, Jews wouldn't do such a thing, and he didn't want to be Jewish, and so he, it, it was a way of declaring himself not part of that community. So he was really messed up about this identification and wanting to work it out. You know, as he grew older, he understood that there was something lacking in his life, that, that there was this rich heritage that was presented to him, but he had closed himself off to. And In 1959, Robbins was in Poland and other parts of Europe and also Israel with his dance troupe, Ballets USA. And while they were in Warsaw, on a whim, he gets the idea that he should take a day trip to Rojanka. You know, this is like 35 years later from when he went as as a child. And he hires a driver and they set out heading toward Rojanka and when they get there, and I think actually they didn't get there. I think they got to a different Rojanka because his father's Rojanka wasn't in Poland anymore, and they wouldn't have been able to cross the border in 1959 into the Soviet Union. Um, but in any case, it doesn't really matter which Rojanka, because there's a few of them in towns with that name in Poland, because all of them would have looked the same by then, which is decimated, gone, no trace of Jews. And this is another searing moment for him. And then, you know, four years later... He gets this draft script from Bach, Harnick, and Stein, and it becomes the opportunity for him to, as he put it, uh, to, to revivify shtetl life on the stage. And he gets very, very excited about this chance to really come to terms with his background and the legacy that he 
hadn't really embraced up until then. It's fascinating because you tell such great stories in the book about the lengths to which he went to make sure that the show was authentic. And I in particular found it just so gripping that he had this sort of ultra-Orthodox fixer, this woman who would take him around and sort of be his chaperone or escort at these ultra-Orthodox functions so he could witness uh, the dancing. What mm-hmm. did he find in these uh, celebrations? Yeah, that was a that was really one of the surprises I found in in my research that absolutely fascinated me. So there's this woman named Devora Lapson. I'm not sure how ultra orthodox she was herself, though. I think she, I think she was observant, but in any case, she was an expert in Jewish dance, and yeah, she brokered these visits to Jewish weddings and um, Simchas Torah celebrations and other kinds of events. And Robbins was absolutely flabbergasted by the dancing that he saw. Because first of all, remember what I was just saying about how screwed up he was about his idea of Jewish manhood, which was, you know, all, you know, soft and wimpy and so on. And he goes and he sees these men dancing together and the room is shaking and they're, they're pounding the floor and they're flinging their bodies around and they're, you know, knocking over the furniture and they're leaping and cavorting and he just can't believe it. I mean, he has notes after notes about this and and there's one where he says, um, I don't know if I can quote it exactly. I quote it in the book where where he says that there there was something in this movement that said, you know, I exist and I survive and I assert myself uh, in this way and this was, I, I think this was like a psychological breakthrough for Jerry Robbins to see these men doing this macho dancing. It just it 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 just thrilled him. And he saw other things too that make their way into Fiddler. You know, the the separation of men and women with the you know the rope set up at the wedding, the lifting of the bride and the groom in the chairs, you know, a, a lot of the the ritual activities and customs that are familiar to all of us that that we recognize in Fiddler. He he, he saw again and again in these weddings. But it was really the dancing, um, including one guy who showed up a lot at many of these functions doing this um, shtick, which is sort of, um, you know, the idea of, or lotso, you would say, in the commedia tradition. Um, this this one guy who tottered around with a bottle on his head as if to prove he's sober is sort of the idea. Mm-hmm. Um he took that and transformed it into the show-stopping bottle dance that is in the wedding sequence in Fiddler. In the show's original uh, production on Broadway, Tevye was played by Zero Mostel, who had a, uh, I wouldn't say parallel story to Robbins, but who similarly felt very passionately about uh, the production. What briefly was his backstory? Zero Mostel grew up here in New York. His father was a rabbi. It was a big family. They were extremely observant. And somehow uh, his mother appreciated the artistic talent that he displayed as a very young boy and encouraged him to go to the Metropolitan Museum and sketch things there and to study art and so on. And he, obviously, he pursued his art, and he painted his whole life, and he considered that his primary artistic expression, and that, you know, acting was just this thing he did on the side, which is just, I mean, he was such a brilliant actor, and to think that that was just his secondary um, occupation is kind of mind-boggling. In any case, he, he also was hilarious and exuberant and sort of 
the as a personality the opposite of Jerry Robbins. Jerry Robbins, you know, as a choreographer, he was you know very controlled and you know stood erect, and you know his shirt was always tucked in and his pants were pleated and all of that. And and Mustel was you know roly poly and spilling all over the place, and you know had no filter or boundaries. There are million anecdotes about him, you know, acting up in public and just doing all kinds of crass and boorish things. And he knew Yiddish, you know, that was his language at home, and he knew Jewish practice. He grew up with it, but he rejected it. And then he was rejected by it when he got married to a woman who was not Jewish, and his family pretty much disowned him. And he was really upset and furious about that. So he had an affection for his Jewish upbringing. He cared about it. He was very erudite, actually, very well-read in world literature and Jewish literature and Yiddish. And he he cherished it at the same time that he was, you know, royally furious about it. He was really angry about his, the, the rejection and the rigidity that he experienced. And so he was coming from a different direction from Robbins's about his conflicted feelings uh, about Jewishness, but they both sort of combusted together. And then, of course, they didn't like each other, you know, not only because their personalities were so different, but because, you know, Zero Mustel had been blacklisted, Jerry Robbins had named names. Um, this was not exactly a bridgeable gulf. And yet they made this fabulous show. And yet they made this fabulous show because they were both geniuses of the American stage who respected each other as artists and were willing to put that work above their you know, personal animosity. But you do make the point in the book that although this show was a huge success, it didn't have, say, the fabulous music of West Side Story or choreography of other shows. So what accounts for its uh, huge success? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a great show. It's true. The dances in West Side Story are maybe more spectacular. I think uh, the Bach and Harnick score for She Loves Me is uh, maybe better. I mean, I do love the songs yes. in Siddler. Um, <laughs> but it is greater than the sum of its parts. And it's those aspects. It, you know, it didn't become such a tremendous hit only because it's a good show. It's also it spoke to cultural needs in this moment and keep speaking <laughs> to such needs as they transform. And it did that for a lot of reasons. So one, as I already mentioned, has to do with this contradictory moment for Jewish America of um, of despair and exuberance at the same time. So the show honors the past that Jewish America needs to mourn and does it at a certain distance because, of course, the, it... it the show takes place in 1905, not in 1940, right? So it's it's not as if the world it's representing is the world that was immediately decimated by the Holocaust. And yet it's a representation of, of the culture that was decimated and provides a usable past. And so it was one thing for the previous generation or two generations to have deliberately left that behind, to have rejected it. But now that it's completely gone, it can be um, honored and appreciated, and it's a way of, of it's a way of commemorating that past through its represent through the celebration of it in a Broadway musical. At the same time, the 
show ends with Tevye and his family coming to the United States, which is not how the Shom Aleichem stories end. And it gives American Jews an opportunity to recognize how far we've come. And so we we get both to commemorate this past and to celebrate the present and the future in in, in a way in in a in a paradoxical way celebrate our distance from that past. So that's one of the key ways I think it's speaking to Jewish America in that moment. But of course it has universal appeal. It's a story of generational conflict as each daughter in turn chooses her own husband in violation of uh, the the custom of a matchmaker and each one at a further and further remove from uh, what is customary. Um, I think the, the biggest translation that the show makes that makes it universal and also makes it appeal to assimilating American Jews is it translates Jewish law or Torah into tradition. So tradition is this sort of general idea that everybody has, right? Every immigrant community understands something about tradition, the old ways that are changed when they are assailed by the forces of modernity from inside and out. You know, this this isn't about we must follow, you know, the mitzvot of the of the Torah. This is we have these charming customs called tradition. Right. That's a big difference. And it makes this story available both to assimilating Jews and to people of all backgrounds. So it had giant universal appeal. And the last point, I guess, for now, just in a very long answer to your question, but it's... It's a good it's, answer. It's, thank you. <laughs> but it's a big question. Why was this so sure. popular? So I think of this show as a show that is a lot about transition and that expresses transition not only in the stories that it represents, but also in its very form at a moment of transition in the United States. So... Let me try to pull those threads apart. <laughs> so first of all, of course, um, the civil rights movement is heating up in a major way at the time this show opens. The sit-ins have started. Um, the women's movement is beginning to take off. The, the anti-war movement is starting to heat up. All of these changes are happening. The youth rebellion, you know, there's that. <laughs> there's this great line early in the show when Perchik shows up for the first time, and he's talking to the men um, as they're picking up their cheese from Tevya right before Shabbos, and um, he's um, not quite rude, but he challenges uh, what they're saying, and one of them says, oh, you're not from around here. Where are you from? And he says, I've just come from the university in Kiev. And one of them says, oh, the university, is that where you learn how to disrespect your elders? Well, that is completely aligned from 1963, as the youth culture is is starting to rebel on campuses all over the U.S. So there's all of this change sweeping America, this feeling of transition, and that's what the show is about, about change and, and how a family handles that change, responds to it, is, is, is trying to stand firm as these winds of change are blowing. Formally, the show is transitional. So it sort of expresses this idea in the very way it's constructed. And what I mean by that is the, the music, the golden age of the musical sort of reaches its, uh, its pinnacle, you know, in the early 60s, and then people just sort of decline from there. 
and the golden age defined by the so-called integrated book musical, a musical that uh, whose songs advance the action and aren't just separate you know, showpieces, right. same thing for the dances, that they express the action and aren't just separate showpieces and, and so on. And that's all true. You get all of those storybook satisfactions from Fiddler on the Roof. But as we get toward the end of this period, the so-called concept musical starts to emerge, the Sondheim musicals, some candor and ebb in a way, where it's not driven so much by plot as by theme and idea. And there might be elements that are more discomforting and aren't so usual and satisfying or happy feeling. Um, and we have that in Fiddler as well. We have first act curtain coming down on a pogrom. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the show ending. I mean, we have a very bleak second act in a lot of ways with, um, you know, Huddle going off to Siberia following Perchik and then the, you know, the apostasy of Chava and then the eviction of the family. I mean, that's not exactly a happy, happy way of having a second act of a musical and is more in line with some of the musicals that are coming later. So I think Fiddler is in its form transitional and I think speaks to these feelings of change. And I think this is also why it remains so popular because we're always in, you know, there's, things are always changing. There's always some way to recognize that feeling in it of things coming at you that you're not quite sure how to deal with. One of the things that struck me in reading this book was how much fun it must have been to research it. I mean, just going through the archives and talking to these uh, young actors who are now grown. What surprised you most in the reporting? Oh, boy. What surprised me most? Um... I think, you know, Jerry Robbins' story that we've talked about surprised me a lot. We haven't talked about some of the pre-Fiddler stuff, the the embrace of Shomalechem by the communist left um, in the 50s. And I'll just leave that there as a, <laughs> as a little enticement. Exactly. <laughs> um, was a surprise to me and very interesting. And, and the um, the role of Fiddler in Israel um, certainly surprised me. It was the first foreign production. And I think especially the role of Fiddler in Poland, um, where I had the pleasure of researching uh, an outdoor production in a little town in the, the southeast of Poland called Dinov. And also, you know, all of the ways that Fiddler continues to pop up in our culture. You all will have to get the book to find out more what Elisa is talking about when she alludes to all those uh, things that she turned up. But in the meantime, we want to ask you, what is your favorite song from the show? And we'll go out with that. Hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to say two things. My favorite song is a song that actually got cut from the show. So uh, most people don't know it. It played when they were on the road tryouts in Detroit and Washington. It was performed and then it was cut for reasons we don't have time to talk about now. But it's called When Messiah Comes. And um, it comes in the moment at the end when they get the eviction notice and somebody says, Rabbi, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? And he says, well, we'll have to wait for him somewhere else. <laughs> well, there was this song there that went, when Messiah comes, he will say to us, I apologize that I took so long. <laughs> But I, <clears throat> but I had a little trouble finding you. Over here a few and over there a few. You were hard to reunite, but everything will be all right. And it goes on like that, and it's really hilarious, and it sounds more like something Tony Kushner would write in, you know, 
this century than something that belonged in Fiddler on the Roof. So I really love that song. Um, but if I have to choose one from the show itself, um, uncharacteristically, I think I would choose Matchmaker. Matchmaker, because, um, you know, d- d- because how it inverts the standard so-called I want song in a musical. You know, usually early on in a show, you the, the, the characters um, declare what they want, often in song, you know, in song. And here's one where they start, the girls start declaring what they want, but they end up by saying, no, I don't really want that, you know, please take your time. And I think that's a very interesting uh, use of, of that form. And then also Harnick's lyrics are just so charming in the last lines. They're, you know, so clever with the, you know, uh, groom me no groom, um, find me no find, catch me no catch, unless, he, unless he's a matchless match. I mean, those are just perfect lyrics. So I, I, I have to say that one, I guess. But if you ask me tomorrow, I'd probably say something <laughs> else. Matchmaker, matchmaker, you know that I'm still very young. Please Take your time. Up to this minute, I misunderstood that I could get stuck for good. Do you yearn to see that he's gentle? Remember, you were also a bride. It's not that I'm sentimental. It's just that I'm terrified. Matchmaker, matchmaker, plan me no plans. I'm in no rush. Maybe I've learned. Playing with matches, a girl can get burned. So ring me no ring, groom me no groom, find me no find, catch me no catch, unless he's a matchless Elisa Solomon, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Elisa Solomon is the author of Wonder of Wonders, A Cultural History of Fiddler on the Roof. It's out now from Metropolitan Books, and it is a wonder in itself. I definitely recommend you get it and you read it. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so very much for joining us. 